Welcome back to Invisible Machines, a podcast produced in partnership with UX Magazine and OneReach AI. I am your co-host, Josh Tyson, and Rob Wilson and I have explored lots of different concepts surrounding the integration of conversational AI into organizations. Probably the, the key ingredient, maybe the most important ingredient of all is flexibility. And flexibility is one of those things that is sort of easier said than done. It's easy to talk about flexibility, but exhibiting flexibility is quite another thing. And we have a great conversation today that shines a lot of light onto notions of flexibility and, and many other topics as well. But we're talking with best-selling author Brad Stolberg today. Brad's newest book, Master of Change, introduces this concept of rugged flexibility which is actually kind of an incredibly useful concept for companies that are kind of wrestling with AI in this moment. The book is geared more towards individuals, I think, or, or you know, the idea of finding personal happiness and balance. But as I was reading the book, I kept not only finding useful tools in that regard, but also encountering ideas that applied readily to the organizations uh, that are really trying to grapple with, with AI in this moment. So. This is a really useful conversation. Uh, Brad is a frequent contributor to the New York Times. He has also written other successful books, including Peak Performance, The Practice of Groundedness, and The Passion Paradox. Brad hosts his own podcast called Growth Equation. He is a former McKinsey consultant and is currently a professor at University of Michigan in their public health department. Uh, Brad has all sorts of fascinating insights into many aspects of life and business. And this is a really kind of a cool conversation. We talk about, you know, along with, you know, AI and how it's affecting organizations. We spent some time talking about happiness, adaptability, and this road that we might be taking with technology. Actually, let's call it a path. It's a path, not a road. And if you read Master of Change, you'll understand the distinction between a path and a road. Um, but yes, let's hope that we are on a path to utopia enabled by all this powerful technology that is becoming more and more intertwined with our lives. So anyway, maybe step one is, is listening to this great conversation with our new friend, Brad Stolberg. All right, well, Brad, great to see you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to being here. Yeah, and Rob, a delight hey. as always to see you. Okay, yep. Right. We always do this, but we literally were talking three minutes before every time this happens. So I never, and I, I never feel genuine in actually greeting you as oh, in, if in I haven't just been talking to you for the last hour. <laughs> Understandable. Understandable. <laughs> uh, so Brad, when Rob and I were talking actually moments ago, we were discussing uh, this idea that, well, we, we've, we've talked with multiple best-selling authors on this podcast, um, Seth Godin came to mind, like he, he wrote, recently wrote a book called The Song of Significance. You know, people who've written books that aren't specifically about AI, but that have critical insights uh, for people who are working with AI. Uh, and I think Master of Change, I, I found it to be fascinating on many levels, but I was over and over again kind of struck by how many of the things you were talking about in terms of kind of achieving uh, happiness and a more balanced mind readily applied to to kind of organizations who are are dealing with the hard to face reality yeah. 
of AI. Uh, the central idea of rugged flexibility, for instance, is is definitely something that we see uh, businesses needing to develop yeah. as they're trying to work with this technology. So I guess to kick us off, I was just wondering if if you see this this book as having kind of a broader application uh, for, for organizations and as, as well. And then also, I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are on on how AI is kind of accelerating the amount of change in our world hey. and, and how we might you know, prepare ourselves for that as well. So I, I do, to answer your first question, think that um, the concepts and, and themes in the book apply to us as individuals, to our family units, to our local communities, to our organizations, uh, I would argue even to our culture, society as a whole. Uh, I first started writing the book uh, long before chat GPT and what I'm going to call the most recent wave of AI. I think I would argue that AI has been a lot more gradual than people think, but it certainly mm -hmm. has hit a step change of acceleration. And um, really, just as I was putting the final touches on my book, did AI hit that step change of acceleration? So I, I was able to sneak it in in just a few examples, but you could argue that the whole book uh, could be geared toward how do we reckon with the world with increasing artificial intelligence and what does that mean for us? Um, I'm not an expert in AI. I'm an expert in the concepts in the book around humanism and change. I, From the little that I know about AI, I think particularly this notion of rugged flexibility in values alignment is extremely important in using values to help drive decision-making under uncertainty, uh, but not ever getting too rigid with those values because as the environment around you changes, uh, the way that you apply those values must shift as well. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to think about this idea of AI's capabilities to change versus a human. So if AI is the synthesis of human beings because jobs are designed for humans and we then therefore are designing our software to replicate humans because the jobs were designed for humans and we're trying to automate the jobs. And then of course, at some point we get out of this scomorphic kind of thing where why don't we just design the jobs for machines? But we're in that phase where we're designing jobs for humans and we're saying that um, machines then therefore we've embedded in those machines our willingness or unwillingness to change, right? So it, this rigid software before deep learning is super uh, like to exploitive, let's say, like in the explore exploit paradigm. If it's, it's, it's not learning, it's not flexible, it doesn't want to change, it's hard to change, it's, it's very rigid. And we're now entering a world where our software is potentially more capable of change than we humans are. So there's like this paradigm shift from the software now is able to change on its own faster than we are. And can we keep up with it? Which is, I guess, interesting, right? It makes us uncomfortable. Yeah, that's a fascinating way to think about it. Do we speed up or do, does it slow down? <laughs> do we speed up or and try to catch up with it? Or do we slow down? Or, do just, or is there a way to become good with it? Like, is there a way to not compete with it? I think that um, my hope is for the latter, that there's a way to ultimately be in conversation with it and to use it as a tool. Uh, I think some of the biggest fears around AI are that it uses us as tools. Uh, and humanistically, that's a very scary world to think about. Um, mm -hmm. 
But I don't think that trying to compete with it makes any more sense than trying to compete with an auto manufacturing factory in trying to right. build cars by hand. Uh, so I think there has to be an adaptability to this new tool. Uh, and, and I think those that are willing to adapt to this new tool will ultimately find themselves ahead and they'll just suffer a lot less because the resistance seems futile. Um, however, I will say that over the, the course of history, every time there has been uh, new technology, there has been a freak out. And um, there has been a segment of society that clings to the old. Uh, this is true with the printing press. Uh, many people said that you know oral history is going to go away and it's going to be terrible. And many people would argue that the printing press was our, the greatest transformation of society recently. Uh -huh. uh, so I think that another thing that is causing some discombobulation in people is that if you think of like the 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 most recent step change technology uh, to affect humanity, it's probably the internet. Uh, but the verdict is still out on the internet. Like the internet is not good or bad, it just is. But the internet is also, at least mass use of the internet, it's not that old. So I think it's challenging when people like try to judge a new technology based on the most recent one, which we're still in our like uber infancy with the internet. Yeah. I wonder if this change is a bit different in the way that now machines can change and adapt faster than us versus machines not learning, right? So if machines aren't learning, then we don't have to worry about it getting ahead of us. It becoming something that we don't understand or making decisions before we can keep up, whereas now it might be making decisions for us um, ahead of our ability to agree with those decisions, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. And I think that ultimately, if if we can be in a position where we're the ultimate decision maker uh, in, in, right. and we get to decide what to do with that information we're fed, I think that is like the most um, consoling way yeah. to look at it. Because I think about like, let, let's where the rubber meets the road, like a really practical use case where humanity has just struggled immensely and there seems to be great potential for AI to actually get way ahead of us and to make decisions that we can't is um, like biomedical research, uh, treating diseases right. like muscular dystrophy, ALS, cancer. And that's an area where I would be happy to say, no, I don't want to hold AI back. I want AI to get way ahead of us because there's so much human suffering because our pace hasn't been fast enough. Um, yeah you look at the flip side of that coin, which is, I'm not the first person, many, many experts have stated this, uh, biomedical or excuse me, not biomedical, like bioengineering uh, terrorism is terrifying. Uh, and it's two sides of the same coin. Definitely. So it's really a tool and like all tools, uh, I think it can be very useful for humanity. And I think that if used out of context or inappropriately, it can be extremely deleterious. Yeah, so I guess basically, it's the generalization that's the problem then. We can't have a discussion, that practical discussion, at such a high level as the term AI. And we have to get more specific about which technology, what portion of AI, and which under which circumstance are we talking about. Yeah, I think that's right. 
when I, I think our relationship to technology really comes into play too, uh, Brad, you mentioned, you know, people being afraid of technology using us as a tool, but that paradigm already exists. I mean, social media is marketed to us as, as, a, as a free thing that you can just use at your leisure, but, but really you kind of are the, the tool in that scenario. So it seems like that, that's another piece of this change is we have to kind of break away from that relationship with technology where, you know, we're not as connected with, with who's paying for it, or, or maybe we are, there's more transparency or there's, it gets spread across a greater area. So it's not just like we're using these tools that are controlled by just a handful of people and made to seem like they're there to benefit us, but really they're just kind of mining us. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think for me, that comes back to the use case and the context. So I think social media, I would call an attention economy technology where the whole point Uh is to hold our attention uh, in whether or not we want our attention to be held or whether or not it's fulfilling or it advances our individual goals or our society's goals, it doesn't care. That's Uh very different to me than an AI that is going to work on, again, ALS or cancer. Um, So to me, those are like such separate phenomenon. If there's a noble cause and and it makes sense, then then using technology to achieve that, it's really... It's really just a mirror to our most of our businesses, our most of our efforts towards a, you know, this noble cause or not. Um, and in the case where yes, then of course we want to accelerate towards that. And in the case where no, um, it's dangerous. And it kind of comes down to what are we programming it or asking it to do, not is it in itself dangerous? Um, and what and constraints? And we can see what that social media may not be a noble cause. Right, and what and I was going to say, right. in what can in what constraints do we put on it in ourselves? Um, in in uh-huh. here, it gets back to like the the rugged flexibility paradigm that I explore in the book. Is I would argue like the ruggedness are those constraints that maybe don't change or are very slow changing, and then within those constraints, uh-huh. you let the machine run fairly wild, adjusting as you go. Um, but those constraints are really important. I mean, I think of another parallel, I'm sure I'm not the first to use it, is um, like nuclear fission. Uh, some very smart people say that nuclear energy is probably our greatest chance out of climate catastrophe. And people also say that nuclear fission is probably the biggest threat to humanity right now. Uh, same tool uh, or same technology, but two sides of very different coins. And the only thing that allows us to so far exist in an equilibrium that perhaps is more tenuous than we'd like is that we have some constraints. We have peace treaties. We have accords. Uh, many people are working towards further entrenching those constraints. And the same thing will probably be true with AI. Um, and I think delineating, like you said, like kind of noble noble cause versus not. An AI that's going to be really good at posting on social media to keep everybody doom scrolling uh, is probably not a noble cause. Right. And maybe that's, I mean, this is going to sound maybe too overly simplistic, but maybe that's where we need to focus AI right now is, is helping us, uh, not, um, enable those individuals or that culture that is driving those noble causes. Like maybe that's, that's where we need to deploy it first is to address the fact that there's an issue with our, 
you know, with with how our uh, how we operate as an organism, as a larger social organism, and say there's still a lot of flaws. We still have a lot of um, issues with capitalism in terms of how well um, it serves humanity, and and now that we're going to basically supercharge capitalism, uh, we're going to super super you know supercharge both sides of it, the noble causes and the not so noble causes and so maybe address now we have to address it right it, it's, it's almost like a come to jesus on is social media and making money um and and advertising on it and manipulating people to buy stuff as a as a byproduct of connection between human beings noble and what kind of connection is it? Is it like the Skittles variety of connection or is it the meat and potatoes variety right. um, yeah. of, of, yeah. of connection? Well, I think that's one of the one of the strengths that we focus on with Conversationally in particular is that it has that ability, at least if it's implemented right, to kind of pull us away from our screens a little bit. We don't need to spend time doom scrolling to feel connected to the people in our lives if we're able to, I don't know, for instance, just like chat with a, with some sort of personal assistant that is maybe coming through those feeds for us and saying like, mm-hmm. here, here are the three things that happened today that you actually probably want to know about. Um, you know, this person said this on one of your posts, do you want to reply or not? And they could almost become like a layer between us and some of these. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And putting yeah, yeah. a layer that hiding the post, like not even letting us see it. Just the fact that we know about it. You can't unknow that, right? It's. Yeah. It's, yeah Cause uh, right now the technology is set up kind of to work against your your worst instincts or to take right. advantage of them. So if you had this ally, a, a different technology was an ally to try and buffer that, that could be a helpful first step. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I think that's right. It's like the, the auto mute or block button, essentially. Like if the egghead gets good enough to know, <laughs> and there are risks because, you know, you got to really fine tune that thing because you, you do want to see people that view the world differently, but you want to see... Like, okay, I'm going to step back. Imagine if you could program a conversational AI to filter for in good faith engagement versus not in good faith engagement. Yeah. That would be a gazillion dollar product for me because that's what it's all about on social media is like, I'm here for the in good faith disagreement, Uh but all the stuff that sucks you down and all the doom strolling is not in good faith. Yep. Yep. And I want to pay for that. I don't want that paid for by a third party. That has an ulterior motive for my. I want to pay for that. I want to. I want to be charged. I want. I want to pay a fair price, and I. I do not want there to be any conflict of interest of delivering what is best for me. I don't want it compromised with what's also best for the seller of Skittles. Yeah, so that's interesting. Like to deploy it to kind of allow us to to do a better job at. Deploying and regard. So I had this crazy idea this weekend. It this may not be new to some people. To me, it was an interesting way of thinking about it. I was kind of going the, the ultimate end of AI is we're talking about automation at scale. And when you, if you're able to get a company to a self-driving state, just like a car, um, which we can see is possible because if you can make a car self-drive, you can make a company self-drive. Uh, what does it look like in the future? with employment and how do what are our lives look like with 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 self-driving companies and it kind of comes down to some companies will make sense to be self-driving some won't but it made me realize that 
um, I kind of moved to government in my head and I went, well, what is a company in government? It's a public service. And what if that public service became so affordable that our taxes could do 10 times or 20 times as much as it does today in terms of, you know, social programs and infrastructure like our roads and our lights and 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 so does social media and all of these things now become so affordable enough that they become a lot of these companies that are self-driving just become public services things that we would never consider something we want to be a public service now is because we don't have to worry about competition because we know that the bots will are programmed to compete we don't have to put those incentives in there for them yeah, I mean, I think that you're getting close to like the the humanist utopian view of um, important things are social servant social services, public services that account for minorities that avoid the tragedy of the commons, and that people then can go make art, make love, play sport, uh, and enjoy their lives. Um, I think that mm-hmm. is like the the ultimate best case scenario. Uh, I've done a lot of research on human motivation and human drives, and I fundamentally believe that no human is born motivated to quote-unquote work or to make money. Uh, what we're born motivated to do is find meaning and mastery and belonging and status in the way that society is currently organized. We find many of those things, for some people, all of those things through our work, but there's nothing special about work. Um, you know, you could do a simple thought experiment. Like the next billion dollars does not matter to Elon Musk. He's not chasing money. He's chasing status. Uh, so I think that like we need uh-huh. to separate this old myth that we get a lot of meaning from work. That's true. We do get a lot of meaning from work, but it doesn't have to be that way. What well, we get meaning from what decades of psychological research yeah, from shows our we get co-workers, meaning from. not from yeah, our work. It's, well, it's three things. There's, I mean, there's very good social science on this. It's autonomy or some ability to have control over our time and energy. It's mastery or feeling like we are making progress at something, and then it's belonging. And when people have those three things, they, they flourish, they're happy, and they do well. Right. So work does not equal those things. Work is just uh, one way some people might achieve those things. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a hundred percent right. And there's some fascinating research um, from some of the like Nordic and, and Scandinavian countries that um, they produce a lot of phenomenal like electric dance music, EDM DJs and artists. And um, there's a compelling argument that a part of the reason for that is because they have such strong social supports that people don't go into debt at school and then feel like they need to join a big law firm to pay off that debt. So they have more freedom to make art. Uh, it's a fairly uh, like controversial opinion in social science, but I think it's an interesting one that um, there's probably a lot more room for art and creativity if we could automate some of the drudgery. I mean, how many how many phenomenal artists or creatives or uh, peacemakers are we sitting on that are just like paying back debt, or the opposite are in poverty right. and needing and, and never even getting the opportunity to explore their inherent talent because they're going to school hungry starting in kindergarten, in a world where we don't have that, I think is a better world. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's job isn't like Einstein, right? Where 
he's able to review patents every day and therefore his job actually becomes his passion and, and, and aids towards it. A lot of us are doing soul-sucking, emotionally draining things. Um, and so while you're doing those things, of course, you're not doing productive, creative things. It's just a matter of time because the, the day ends and then you got to sleep and then you got to wake up and you got to do soul-sucking stuff again. Um, well, I think we've yeah. been trained too to like link our identities and sense of self with productivity and how productive we can be. Yeah. And, and it, it's, it's almost feels hard to understate how deep that goes. And it, it seems like there is almost like a quiet disdain sometimes, uh, in, in this country, at least for, for people who are just taking time to create and, and spending time, you know, working on their art or whatever, they're sometimes seen as lazy or or not like contributing, which feels odd to me, but. Just to, to kind of weave in where, do, competition's important. How do we weave this into this? Um. So, so competition is important. How do we weave it into this? I think Josh alluded to this earlier that if you could program the technology to essentially compete with other technologies so like you have like two competing bots and maybe we don't even see this right like we the end user the humans don't see this uh. but somewhere in the invisible machine you actually have like nine separate invisible machines that are all working for the best answer and then the technology uh. can determine what the best answer is and that's like this training essentially yeah because okay so if you're gonna if you're gonna design that's a great design, answer if you're going to design this based on best human practices, like there's there's a theory in organizational science that I think makes a lot of sense that you want to have an organization with really good cohesion around like mission at the top, but then you want to have like multiple regions in your organization that go explore and do things differently. And then when you identify a best practice, you want to adopt that across the board. And I think imagine within the machine, you think uh -huh. of like, it's a big organization, but it's got 10 different regions that are all set to solve the same problem. And then if one or two figure out the best way to do it, then that's all that we see. That's what gets spits out. Right. Or we see the argument to an earlier podcast we had with, uh, remind me, Josh, which one it was. It was uh, Lee Hood and Nathan Lee Price, Hood. Yeah, I yeah, think. yeah, yeah. So we talked about um, your healthcare and w listening to two or th more bots argue about whether you should eat a donut or not or whether you should, you know, take a drug or not. And that it actually educates us like it might be the way we stay in the loop is to is to listen to the argument so that we become educated so have them argue in our language and that might be a way we we actually uh become more data driven a way to consume data you know it's engaging to watch anyone argue whether even if it's two machines yeah it's a fascinating idea um and and also a way to help us not only have insight into the machine, but have insight into what good argument looks like. Uh, because that's yeah. a, a kind of a lost <laughs> good art. Point. That's a great point. Well, yeah. I feel like the distinction's important too, that like the AI is incredibly powerful in terms of automating things that we don't like doing. Like it would be great to never see that spreadsheet again type stuff. But but then there's also the layer where we want to be very present with it. And, and I think, Brad, you were hinting at this, like the AI delves through all the data and then brings you some options so that you're making a choice. So it becomes an ally in your decision-making process and makes you feel 
more powerful and useful and connected in that sense. Yeah, and then the philosophical rub is what happens when the AI gets so good that it can make that decision for you or it can make that decision, quote unquote, better than you. And then how do we not just right. all become like- Or can't explain like, it to you because you're too dumb. Right. How do we not become <laughs> yeah. um, automatons in like Wally? -E? Uh, and I don't have the yeah, answer. Yeah, we're just being placated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because because where where does meaning come from then? If the objective is productivity, then maybe we don't care about becoming automatons. If it's connectivity with other people, like you you reframed what our objectives are, right? As humans, why we go to work isn't to produce widgets. That wasn't in your three things. Um, yep. I, I don't think it needs to be in that competition. Right. So then, like, so then well, I, I don't agree need with machines you. in that. I agree with you, and I think that's a great point. But then, what happens when you design the sex bot or the human partner? Uh, because to follow your the argument, Skittles. Rob. Yeah. To, well, to follow your argument, Rob, which I think is a good one. Great. Like, who cares if I have to decide? You know, I guess in my case it's different because I write, which feels like an art. But I don't know if there's an AI that can write better books than I could ever write and they're more enjoyable, like it, it feels weird. But just because something feels weird doesn't mean it's not good. But following your premise, what AI can't do is AI can't look into the eyes of another person and fall in love or it can't have a brotherly or sisterly mm -hmm. kind of relationship or a deep, intimate human community unless the AI can't. Uh, and then it kind of gets a little dystopian for me, at least. Yeah. And then maybe that's what we guard against. Like, it's like saying, no, that's where we've gone off the rails. Like, if you fall into the three things that make us happy at work or those three buckets. Yeah. And we're using machines now, then those are Skittles and that's selling junk food or cigarettes. Right. Yep. And uh, but for the brain versus the body. And yep. we shouldn't sell cigarettes to kids and we shouldn't sell Skittles to kids either and call it lunch. Um, and, and, uh, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a, a place for this in productivity so that to your point, we can do more of the things that it shouldn't be doing. Yeah, I agree. I think like, uh, to, to continue this metaphor of food, it's like ultra processed productivity is fine. It's actually a good thing. Cause then we get to step back, but ultra processed, mm -hmm belonging, ultra-processed meaning, ultra-processed connection is not a good thing. Um, I love and, that. Yeah. And I think that then that's where the constraints have to be. But I, yeah, I think that like if I'm drawing a couple of big takeaways, let's disconnect like work being on a pedestal and the need to protect work. And let's actually say, no, like if we, if the AI can do work better than us, let it go nuts. Uh, but then we need to be really clear about what's real meaning, what's real mastery, what's real belonging versus the superficial kind. And I don't mention autonomy because AI is going to give us autonomy. That's just like a, a direct win in the AI category, mm -hmm. right? If it does the nine to five job, then we have autonomy. Yeah. The question really is who's going to do all the therapy that we're all going to need when we no longer value ourselves on our productivity and we have to face the existential crisis of what is the meaning of life and what actually makes me happy? <laughs> But I think yeah, I mean I, that's I, the thing, right? We yeah, we're, we're scared in this moment right now of of losing our jobs, um, and I think part of that is like we're we're feeling like we're going to lose our identities. But but there is like this close at hand world where machines get to do what machines are really good at, and maybe instead of trying to fill our time with more kind of kind of like productivity 
things, we actually could slow down and, and look into people's eyes, have meaningful conversations. And are people scared about the identity portion of losing their job? Like, because if you told everyone you're going to lose your job, but we're going to pay you double your salary or just even match your salary for current workers, would people be as afraid? Uh, I don't know. I mean, then you get like, then there's yeah. you know, universal basic they, income. We saw something. that with the pandemic. We know what happens. <laughs> the pandemic right. showed us what happens. But, but, yeah, but the but the, the they run, the, they take the check. They but take the, the yeah, check. right. And in 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 but imagine now the pandemic without needing to be isolated from one another. It would have been a right. great time. I, I know, think. yeah. So let's do that. I, let's have that kind of pandemic. I, I, I try to be a pragmatist and I am not like um I struggle with utopian thinking just because my Bayesian priors for it are really bad. Because like no one's figured it out yet, so it's hard. <laughs> However, uh, I also struggle. I, I also struggle with just like rote cases, like UBI would never work. Um, I don't buy that at all. I think that uh-huh. if there's a technology that can do the work, then we can pay people to be a citizen and to make art and to connect and to volunteer and to figure out other ways to forge meaning in our life than than work. And if there are visual artists or musical artists whose work is more appealing than the AI, great, people will listen to that. But if not, who cares? They're creating. Like, that's the value. The value's in the creation itself. I was thinking about asynchronous creation versus synchronous, right? And you're referring to asynchronous. The I create it, you see it. That's two creations. Your creation when you look at it and complete the art, right? Because you see everybody sees something different. Therefore, they're part of the art. The more abstract I, my art is, the more you do, the more creation I leave for you to do, right? Um, and so if we're doing it together, we're doing it together. If we're doing it asynchronously, does it matter that that the first part of it was done by a human and then the second part when, when you view it and do your portion of it, like give it meaning to yourself, um, it doesn't matter that both are done by humans um, and it doesn't take away from the creator uh, the enjoyment of creating as they're doing it or the viewer, it shouldn't. But we do love stories. And so uh, you, if you notice art like is hard to define, you got to kind of define it first. But if you say a painting is art, we go, oh, we fall in love with paintings. We don't. We fall in love with stories behind paintings. That's right. That's why art needs um, providence. It feels sometimes like art and maybe capitalism or intrinsically connected, but it it's actually probably more of like a forced marriage. There's really no reason why art should be judged on how much money it can make somebody, right? So if you take that that piece out of the uh out of the out of the uh out of the puzzle, I suppose, then it then it can exist in yeah. a different space. It's first principles, why do we pay money for art so artists can do more art? As long as artists can do more art, what are we worried about? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, yeah, but the only artists that get really paid for their art have jumped through some significant flaming hoops that right. come in all different shapes <laughs> and sizes. So, <laughs> yeah, I I'm I'm pausing because I think that's really an interesting way to think about it. Um, and that's like the hunger for status, maybe. It's like another part of it, right? Because like you jump through this, you uh, get paid, and then status yeah. comes from that. 
Uh, and I do think like we'd have to find other ways to have status. Um, but this is something I think about all the time yeah. because like it used to be before the internet, particularly social media, that if you were like the best person in your local municipal community at something, you were the best person. Like you, you couldn't compare yourself to people in uh-huh. other states, other countries. Uh, now everything can compare to the best in the world. Um, and I think that that has caused a lot of like bizarre discombobulating feelings of how we judge ourselves. Uh, and we did not uh-huh. evolve to compare ourselves to infinity. Uh, we evolved to compare ourselves to a hundred to 200 people around us. Um, and, right. uh, and, and I think that that is also like interesting. Can AI in some ways do all like the global stuff and help us get back to like hyper local? Yeah, I agree with yeah. that. Or making I, the whole world feel hyper local in a way. Yeah, yes. it's that connectivity. It's like another, it's, it's the other side of the connectivity coin to say if, if 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 this is about relativity, then you have to be relative to something. And if you're not connected to anything, then you then you don't have anything to judge yourself against. So that's part of the global village thing, you know, that McLuhanism, right? It's like it's it, it's hard to compare yourself against something amorphous as the global village. You can compare yourself against your community, but you have to be connected to it. Um and to your point of status, what what is the measure of it for so long? And I think it's it's somewhat natural for us to measure against our consumption of our resources. You know, who consumes consumes the most resources is uh, is the winner on status. Uh, my house is bigger. I yeah. use more electricity. I have more cars. I blah, 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 blah. We realize like a tree grows as big as it possibly can. It doesn't care about the plants below that are shaded. It's nature's kind of way to consume, for organisms to consume as much resources as they can and trust that the system, you know, the system kind of checks this, you know, puts a check on on, on nature, right? Um, but and, but, but our, when it doesn't, when sense, it doesn't, we've got we to get find sick. other ways to compete. When it doesn't, it gets right. sick. Right. <laughs> Right. Because to 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 play off yeah. of, to play off of that point, Rob, um, like there's diabetes that happens when we consume too much, mm-hmm. uh, and I would argue right. that um, Dominique Fox, the 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 podcast host Dominique Foxworth and Pablo Torres, I first heard this on a show that they did. They essentially called it diabetes of the ego, and to me, that is like oh, I love it consuming too many resources in the attention economy because like to me what i would argue is the biggest place people get status now is attention economy who can consume the most followers who consumes the most views on youtubes uh so on and so Uh forth and at a certain point any additional attention you're getting is just diabetes of the ego and it actually makes you feel empty because there's never enough in your actual intimate connections, which fill you up, get cannibalized by the amount of yeah. time that you're you're trying to compete for yep. other people's attention. Hundred percent, and that is what like Pablo Torres and Dominic Fox is called diabetes of the ego. Yeah, this is global village stuff. This is you're connected to too many people, so therefore not not genuinely connected enough. Yeah, um, and it's easy. And, it's and easy to call shots. That's about from- our attention span and time. It's easy to call shots from the sidelines, 
but you look at uh, uh. probably the, the the two people in the world that are the best at commanding attention right now, at least in the Western world. Um, I would probably say it's Donald Trump and Elon Musk, and neither seem like very happy, uh, highly fulfilled human beings right now. And again, I'm I'm on the sidelines. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know them. I'm not their psychiatrist, but like from afar. It seems like whatever amount of attention they consume is not doing the thing to fulfill them. Yeah, I mean, what we can agree on is we wouldn't trade places. Yes, that's um, another way. Well, that's another I, way. To I play. don't remember, Brad. If it, I don't know if it comes up in Master of Change or if I heard you talking about it on a podcast, but you were drawing the distinction between like a having mindset, yeah, and a being and mindset, more of a being mindset, and and to me, like that's what's interesting about what we're talking about with the attention economy, right? Is like you can have so much. It's like a flood of having. It's so much having that it's almost hard for your brain to reckon with, but it's disguised almost as being, like in t- at times, right? Like I'm part of this community, I'm being in these relationships with people, but but it's all superficial in a way. Yeah. So it, so it adds this extra wrinkle and bit of confusion. Yeah. How yeah. does change fit into this? Like change has to fit into here somewhere. I'm. I think that the what I argue in the book and, and gets back to where we started with this rugged flexibility is the way to have stability through the process of change is to know your sources of what I call ruggedness. So your that- values, like the one thing that cannot be taken away from you are your values. And when you go into the unknown and you face uncertainty, if you have your values, you can use them as an anchor to provide you stability and to help you make decisions. There's famous neuroscience research where people are put in an fMRI machine to look inside their brain, and then they are um, given scenarios with a threatening change. And individuals that reflect on their core values before that, they show a lot less activity in the parts of their brain associated with fear and threat. And not only is that what's uh. happening on the brain imaging, but then afterwards, those individuals actually go on to absorb the change significantly better than the people who don't spend uh. time with their core values. So I think knowing our values- I wonder- Is the key. I wonder if there's a correlation between core values and and quality of connectivity with your community. Meaning the more connected you are with your direct community, the higher quality, the the more the stronger your value system is. I, yeah, I think you could say that that could be right. I think the other thing I'd say is that um, most people have a value of belonging, love, intimacy, community. Uh, that is like the a priori value, value, the value before all others. So if that value is met, then we can navigate change better. And of course, that's true. Like what made COVID so hard for so yeah, many people? That is that we couldn't lean on community in the ways that we normally do. Um, and since freaking uh-huh. the stories of the Bible, uh, you know, whether real or myth, like one part of, of these, these enduring stories are that during mass hardship and change, we get through it with community. Yeah, it's, the, it's like first principles, like without fixing the, that core problem, then you can't change. You can't, there's so many things that symptoms, I guess, of, of lack of community. Um, and so asking somebody to change or to be open to change w- without addressing that core problem could be asking too much. I don't know. Am I going too far there? 
No, I don't think you are going too far there. Um, I think that that is a lot of the the current fear in strife is that a lot of people are being, well, I don't know if they're being asked to change, but they're seeing that the world is changing and the world is changing fast. And the people that feel isolated throughout all this um, tend to be the people that are most resistant of change and, um, and tend to be people that often will make poor decisions amidst change. Uh, but those are also the people that my heart breaks for because it sucks to be isolated amidst a lot of change. Yeah. So you could almost say that, I, I don't want to make social media the bad guy here, but but maybe it's more like this. We maybe need social media in a noble way more than we've ever had needed it before because of the amount of change we're all facing. And, and, and because it's it's not it's cause is not noble it's 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 fake calories it's almost the worst case scenario because we have like a placebo or yeah. worse than the placebo we're taking a pill that actually hurts us thinking it's going to help us um, that's right we're looking so we're looking for if connection it, if in it the did wrong what place. it was supposed to great yeah. yeah we're looking for connection in the wrong place if it did what it's supposed to great or or maybe the the right thing to do is just say that like social media our brains are not adapt to be in a global community on social media. And social media is a great place to sell mm-hmm. a product. It's a great place to exchange ideas. Uh, it's a great place to share information. Uh, it's a great place to do, um, I think I mentioned commerce. Like, you know, this podcast, I, I think that your producer probably discovered me on social media. And now here we are, like one step closer in intimacy. Mm-hmm. So social media is a venue to intimacy is good. But ultimately, you got to get offline and yeah. spend more time with other people yep. in real life uh, offline. As great as this conversation is virtually, it would be even better if we were together. But we don't want perfect to be the enemy of good. Yeah. But one thing upstream is I would have no yep. interest in doing this with both of you in real time on social media with a million assholes commenting. That would not be fun. So what do we do? We take it offline. We get more intimate. I like this. It's it, and, and really, social media just and AI, who cares? The bottom line is... If it facilitates better connectivity between humans, it's good. And if it and if it doesn't, if it actually uh, enables us to be less connected, then it's bad. And it doesn't matter whether it's AI or social media or what machine it is or or what social construct it is. Um, it's got to have it's got to have that noble purpose in it. And right now, with so much change. We need connectivity more than we ever have. Um, so, so can we can we deploy AI or some of the like advancements in technologies now, LLMs, generative, to uh, enable or fix this problem of connectivity first? Is that where we should focus on it first, so that we're all ready for change? You know, kind of step one: prepare people for change. Lay the foundation. Lay the foundation. Yeah, I love that we ended here. It's yeah. awesome. Yeah, I know you got. I know you got to run, Brad, and uh, we really do appreciate you taking the time to join us. It's been a, it's been great. a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Josh, and thank you, Rav. Hey, thanks again for tuning in to Invisible Machines. Don't forget to follow Invisible Machines wherever you get your podcasts, so that you can hear new episodes as soon as they drop. 
You can also watch this podcast on the Invisible Machines YouTube channel. Thank you so much to everyone who listens to this podcast and especially to those of you who leave comments because we've received a lot of really useful commentary that has helped us shape this podcast as we move forward with it. Thank you as always to our producers, Elias Parker, Kate Timchenko, and our video editor, Michael Litvinov for making this podcast look and sound wonderful. We look forward to catching up with you again next week right here on Invisible Machines. Mm -hmm.